Welcome to Earth Matters here on Gila Members Community Radio, KURU 89.1 FM, Silver City. This is Allison Civic, Executive Director of Gila Resources Information Project, a nonprofit advocacy organization that promotes community health by protecting our environment and natural resources. I also serve as the director of the Gila Conservation Coalition that works to protect the free flow of the Gila and San Francisco rivers and the wilderness characteristics of the Gila and Aldo Leopold wilderness areas. In September, the Gila Conservation Coalition organized the 17th annual Gila River Festival that explored our connection to nature, how the environment shapes human identity, and celebrated our connection to one another and the Gila River watershed. Today on Earth Matters, we're bringing to you a panel discussion entitled Exploring the Connection Between Identity and Nature with poet Michelle Otero and nature and science writer Sharman Apt Russell. Thanks to the New Mexico Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities for their generous support of the Gila River Festival and this presentation. Shubankar Banerjee, Lannan Foundation Endowed Chair, Professor of Art and Ecology at the University of New Mexico, moderated the discussion. Let's listen. Well, with that, I want to welcome everyone to day three of the 17th annual Gila River Festival, where we're reconnecting with the Gila River virtually and in person. And for those of you who don't know me, I'm Allison Civic, Executive Director of the Gila Conservation Coalition, and I'm a co-founder and one of the organizers of the event. And we thank you so much for joining us tonight online. And but because we believe that land acknowledgements are important to healing relationships with our indigenous brothers and sisters as we work together to restore the earth, I'd like to acknowledge that those of us joining from what is now Southwest New Mexico reside on the occupied homelands of the Chiricahua and Warm Springs Apache. And we would like to pay our respects to Apache and all native elders, both past and present. Now, each year, many generous individuals, businesses, and organizations support the Gila River Festival because they want to protect the Gila River and the greater Gila bioregion. This year, our major sponsors are the New Mexico Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities, Center for Biological Diversity, Sissy McAndrew at United Country Members Realty, Defenders of Wildlife, Richard Decody and Rebecca Summer, Fort Sill Apache Tribe, Gila Native Plant Society, New Mexico Wild, Western Institute for Lifelong Learning, or WILL, and the Wilderness Society. And please visit the Gila River Festival website for the complete list of sponsors and friends. There's a very long list, and we appreciate every one of them. I also want to thank all of the festival's presenters and volunteers and our dedicated planning committee. As you can imagine, it takes a village to put on the festival every year, and we're very grateful for everyone's participation, not only this year, but for the past 17 years. Yeah. Um. Now, this evening, we're offering copies of Michelle Otero's collection of poetry entitled Bosque and uh, Charmin Apt Russell's book, Diary of a Citizen Scientist for a donation to the Gila Conservation Coalition of $50 or more. And if you'd like to support our work on behalf of the Gila River, please go to the link that we'll post in the chat, make a donation, and let us know in the notes section of the donation page which book you would like or 
feel free to make a donation for both books. I recommend both of them. They're <laughs> lovely. And we're going to hear some selections from both Michelle's um, Bosque and, and Charmin's Diary of a Citizen Scientist. So stay tuned. And before I introduce our moderator for this evening, I want to mention a program note. Um, due to a family emergency, one of our panelists, Michael Casaus, who is uh, the state director of the Wilderness Society here in New Mexico, he's unable to be with us tonight, and we wish him and his family well. I also want to remind everyone that this is a Zoom webinar and not a Zoom meeting, which is what you might be used to. Um, so you're only going to see the panelists on your screen. And also for the Q&A session, please remember to use the Q&A function at sort of the bottom right of your Zoom panel. Um, so type in your questions there, and this is going to help us keep track of the questions a lot more easily than if you were to put them in the chat. So thanks so much for that little sort of um, business item there. So I am really looking forward to tonight's panel <laughs> discussion. And for the next hour and a half, we're going to be exploring the connection between identity and nature with three amazing experts on the topic. But first, I'd like to introduce our moderator for this evening, Subankar Banerjee. And I first learned of Subankar in 2017 when I heard about this intriguing conference being held at the University of New Mexico that Subankar was organizing. It was called Decolonizing Nature, Resistance, Resilience, Revitalization. I attended the entire conference and I'm so glad I made the time for it. I, I learned so much from the many inspiring and thought-provoking discussions. Subankar, he designed fascinating panels on a variety of topics, putting artists on the stage with scientists, indigenous peoples with historians, and we witnessed some of the most productive conversations at that conference. And I thought, we've got to get Subankar to come to the Gila. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> so uh, Subankar Banerjee is a photographer, writer, conservationist, and public scholar. His work has and continues to focus on the two most consequential planetary crises of human history, biological annihilation and climate breakdown. Subankar is the Lannan Foundation Endowed Chair, Professor of Art and Ecology at the University of New Mexico, the founder and director of the Center for Environmental Arts and Humanities, and founder and director of the Species in Peril Project. Welcome, Subankar. Thank you, Alison, for that most kind introduction. <laughs> you all can hear me okay? You all can hear me? Okay, thank you. Thank you, Alison. I also want to thank Leah Barnett, a former student of mine at UNM, who first extended an invitation to me to moderate this panel. Leah works, as Alison mentioned, as the Gila River campaigner with Wild Earth Guardians. I thank everyone at the Gila Conservation Coalition for organizing the festival including this panel, which, as you can imagine, has not been easy due to the pandemic. So thank you, everyone. Greetings, everyone. My name is Shubankar Banerjee. I'm speaking to you from Albuquerque, the traditional homelands and the unceded territories of the indigenous Tewa people, the Pueblo of Sandia and the Pueblo of Isleta. What a beautiful way to open our panel uh, this evening with Leah's question was a 
famous person born at the headwaters of the headwaters of the Gila, and the answer came at a lightning speed, Jeronimo. What a beautiful way to start. I'm humbled and honored to be in conversation with the two distinguished writers of New Mexico, poet Michel Otero and nature science writer Sherman Russell. As Alison mentioned, conservationist Michael Casals was also scheduled to participate, but could not due to family emergency. We miss his present, uh, presence and send our best wishes. Let me share with you the flow of time, kind of the boring business part of it, how the panel would proceed. I will share a few brief remarks on the broad theme of this panel, identity and nature. Then I will introduce each panelist in turn. They will speak about their work for about 12 minutes each, which will include remarks, but also reading of their own writing. In case of Michelle, poems, and for Sherman, prose. We're lucky that we have two noted writers as our <laughs> panelists. After that, I'll pose a few questions to our panelists, very few, maybe just two, because we want to have a Q&A with you all, to our panelists to respond to as it relates to the theme of the panel and the Hiller River. We will then open up a Q&A with you. So please jot down questions that come to your mind as the panel progresses and submit them on the chat area. Leah will pay close attention to that area as questions come in and we will start the Q&A. One important point I would note is that our two distinguished panelists and I, all three of us have deep connection to Gila, the river and the forest, and more broadly to Southern New Mexico. In fact, I'm extremely grateful later in the program, hopefully I'll share a little bit about my personal connection. It was foundational for me, my first visit to the Gila nearly 30 years ago. I'll get to that later. So our conversation, I assure you, will rise from a place of sincere engagement and love for the river, the place, and its human and non-human dwellers. I will now share a few brief remarks on identity and nature, the theme of our panel. When it comes to talking about environmental conservation today, identity and nature is in the mind of many people. When we speak of identity, for me, it includes race, class, gender, ability. Alison, would you mind sharing the PowerPoint? And I have just one image, just to kind of ground ourselves with the broad theme of the conference. Great. So, yeah, we can see it. Let me see. Earlier this month, Defenders of Wildlife launched a bilingual English-Spanish National Biodiversity Strategy student letter campaign that includes an illustration that you see on the screen, which was made by my student, Alexandria Zuniga de Dochas, a Latinx artist and MFA student in art and ecology at UNM. Oh, I think you may have. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Uh, such an image may seem quite normal to today's youth and young adults. Think of the youth-led climate justice collective, the Sunrise Movement, and many such movements around the world. But such an illustration would 
never have graced the visual culture of environmental conservation campaign in the United States, say, even 10 years ago. Environmental conservation in the United States, which began in the mid-19th century and continued to until, I would say, let's say the close of the 1980s, was built and advocated almost exclusively by white Euro-Americans. The white leaders of conservation held a strong belief that indigenous, black, Latinx, and other person of color do not have much to contribute to the national environmental movement. They were never included. In fact, members of those communities, person of color communities, were thought to be impediments to environmental progress in this nation. Moreover, a dominant assessment of the time was that poor people could not be environmental. The latter view led to the eminent historian from India, Ramachandra Guha, to pen a combative critique published in 1989, in which Guha charged that the white Euro-American view that poor people could not be environmental must not go unchallenged. And Guha introduced the concept environmentalism of the poor, which has proven to be extremely influential all over the world and continues to inspire activists and scholars alike. Two years after Guha's essay was published, back here in the United States, the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit took place in Washington, D.C. in October 1991, where the principles of environmental justice was drafted and adopted, and in which our New Mexico environmental justice leader, Richard Moore, played a leading role. Today, my friend Richard Moore serves on President Biden's Environmental Justice Advisory Council. He's from Albuquerque. Almost 30 years later, earlier this year, our very dear Dave Holland, who hails from the Pueblo of Laguna, was appointed as the United States Secretary of the Interior, the very agency that once explicitly stated to civilize or exterminate the indigenous peoples of this nation. We have come a long way. Race and class have become integral part of environmental discussions and actions today. More recently, scholarship and activism in gender and queer studies and disability studies have also included gender and ability in that mix. Everyone, I mean everyone, has a role to play in mitigating the environmental crisis of our time, including biological annihilation and climate breakdown that Alison mentioned earlier, the two most consequential and challenging crises of human history. A discussion on identity and nature is crucially needed and it is a vibrant topic of our time. So I'm deeply grateful to be in conversation with two fierce and widely admired writers. I will now introduce, yeah, now, uh, Alison, please, you can, you can change that, uh, change that uh, slide if need be. I will now introduce our distinguished panelists. First, Sharman 
and then Michelle. Sharman App Russell has been thinking and writing about environmental issues for a very long time, beginning with the collection of essays, Songs of the Flute Player, which was published in 1991 and won the Mountains and Plains Booksellers Award and the New Mexico Zia Award. To the most recent book, which from which I understand she will read, Diary of a Citizen Scientist, which was published in 2014 and won the John Burroughs Medal Award for Distinguished Nature Writing and the Wheeler Award for Creative Nonfiction. She's currently writing Within Our Grasp, Childhood Malnutrition Worldwide and Worldwide and the revolution taking place to end it, which builds on the ideas from her previous book, Hunger, An Unnatural History, which was published in 2005 and returns to the world of food aid and childhood malnutrition. Her nonfiction, Standing in the Light, published in 2008, specifically used the Western tradition of pantheism as a lens to look at our relationship to the environment. For the last 20 years, Sharman has taught seminars in nature writing, environmental writing, and environmental justice at the low residency MFA program at Antioch University in Los Angeles. She's also Professor Emerita at Western New Mexico University in Silver City, New Mexico. For almost 40 years, Sharman has lived in the watersheds of the Gila and the Mimbres rivers. I now invite Sharman to speak about her work and read some of her writing. Take it away. Wow. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, Okay. Yeah. Look at that slide while I talk initially. Um, You know, I agree so completely. I think the identity that we form in nature and, and that nature forms with us includes all our other identities. And that's our political, our social. We bring our gender. We bring our sexual orientation. We bring our race, our nationality. We bring our privileges, you know, um, we bring our parents, we bring our the kitchen sink. I, so I think it makes sense for me uh, in this introduction. I was going to start with how I got to the Gila River. And I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and this fast-growing city in the desert. It was a landscape particularly disenfranchised from the Sonoran Desert. And I think I was also disenfranchised from nature. I was raised by a single mother who wasn't interested in camping and in, and in nature and in going outside. We grew up in apartment buildings, uh, a series of apartment buildings. And last week, I mean, this wasn't originally part of what I was going to say tonight, but last week I happened to be in Phoenix and I went to see some of the old places I had lived. And this was the apartment building. And it is exactly the same. You can see this is a 1950s building. And that's where I lived for formative years. And that would be some 60 years ago. So uh, this is just kind of shot from the car window and, and something of shock. Um, next slide, Allison, maybe. But I, I crept up to that gate and I wanted to take a picture inside because this is this is the environment that formed me. We lived in one of the apartments in the back. There may be 10 units in this building and it's not that different. Uh, the palm trees may or may not have been there. The tree certainly wasn't. There was a little swimming pool. It didn't have a fence. But basically, 
um, you can see these kind of odd references to nature, you know, the gravel, the patch of Bermuda grass, the highly chlorinated swimming pool. Um, it's, it's very human dominated. So this is what I come from. It was amazing that it's still there. This is what a lot of people obviously still come from. So I am, I, you know, I, there was something in me that wanted something more than this, that wanted a connection that was, that I felt would be more profound, more beautiful, more authentic. Uh, and having something to do with reading, with children's books, with libraries, uh, having something to do with the culture and the times, this was the 1960s, I really felt that need for a different kind of connection. So I felt a need before there was a connection. Uh, certainly before there was any kind of environmental identity. You know, that that there was, was my identity. I needed something and I went out to find it. Part of that search was coming here to southwestern New Mexico in 1981, first to the Members Valley and then to the Gila Valley. So I came here in my 20s. Next slide, Allison, uh, with my husband. And we lived on the wrong side of the Members Valley, of the Members River. And in the 1980s, this is from 1982, it began to flood pretty regularly. It would be bone dry. It was pretty damaged in front of where we lived in the Members. Bone dry for weeks and then suddenly in terrific flood. And in order to get to my teaching job in Silver City, you know, I had to cross this uh, old irrigation pipe, kind of scoot across and, and get to our car and drive into Silver City. I look a little grim in this photo, but it was a, I was just probably nervous about scooting across the pipe. It was a very rich time. We were people from the city, from the suburb, who wanted to root into this landscape. We wanted to become part of this soil, this sun, these plants, these animals. We wanted to build our house ourselves, you know, out of adobe, out of the very earth. We wanted to have our children at home with home birth. We wanted to live off our garden, which uh, didn't last very long. Um, we had to quickly acquire other identities. Um, I became a teacher. My husband, you know, took a series of interesting jobs um, for money that the garden couldn't provide. And all the while, we're living by the river. We're accumulating new identities. Uh, next slide, Allison. And this is from 1987. Uh, so we started having children. There I am, pretty pregnant. Um, and we, of course, take them by the river. That was that was one of the things I wanted to do to offer my children. Um, next slide. Next slide. Because I want to skip ahead 25 years. Now it's 2012. And my children are uh, gone and grown. Um, I'm here by the Gila River now, uh, not as a mother, not as a teacher, um, as a citizen scientist, talking to um, some people who are studying tiger beetles. I've come to the river and to these rivers really out of this need. And 40 years later, I'm still here. Um, I've, I, I have. I've, I've rooted here. And one thing I've learned in my relationship to the river has to do with time. So time, I've literally grown old here. <laughs> my children have uh, grown up and left. I've changed in many important ways. Um, and the river's changed too. I've seen it grow big. I've seen it shrink in drought. I've seen forest fires and those dramatic changes. Um, and maybe this last slide now, Allison. 
Thank you, Allison. Um, but even so, you know, with all the time that has passed for me personally, with all the personal changes, some griefs, some losses, the wildness of the river has been timeless. It has been changeless. And that's one thing I've learned. Um, what doesn't change? Um, I, I believe this river, this wildness will endure even, even the extremes of global warming. I think it will live and flourish, not, I think it will live and flow and nourish the world, you know, long after I'm gone and my children too. But, and this is where I want to end, at least my introduction. Realistically, that's only true because the Gila River and the Gila National Forest and the Gila and Aldo Wildernesses are public land. It's only true because people are spending time and energy and love protecting these places. We are in a relationship with them, all of us in New Mexico and in the United States and in the world. I grew up in Phoenix seeing how people could alter landscapes so completely, um, how we could turn rivers into concrete you know, canals. And now today we've turned canals into bike paths. And I love bike paths, you know, and I actually love cities. I think the future is in green, sustainable cities where most of us live. But I also think the future is in places like this. And this reality and this metaphor of rushing, moving water, of change and of changelessness and of our connections to that, of our connections to everything. Back to my apartment building, the connection to that forward to my children. And I think in the end, the connection to our own humility, to being part of something so much larger than we are. So I guess I, I'm going to be doing a short reading now. We kind of talked about that. So that's that's good. I'll kind of end in my current voice. Just remember, this is the child who grew up in the apartment buildings of Phoenix. This is actually from an anthology of poetry and prose called First and Wildest, the Healess Wilderness at 100. And it's an anthology that's coming out in Tory House Press uh, next March. And a lot of people at this festival have, have been involved in it. I'm just taking a part of that essay, which is about an animal. Uh, any identity we have in nature is going to include, obviously, the non-human, a lot of new connections and relationships with animals and, and plants. They emerge from their burrows alone or in pairs, a male and female, creeping through the desert grass. Their stalking of prey is cat-like in the crepuscular evening under the glittery stars, or perhaps a moonlight, silvery and buttery at the same time. Or really in complete darkness, since grasshopper mice are only a few inches tall and creep in the shadow of plant and rock. They rush their victim with mouth open and front paws extended, crushing insects like grasshoppers and beetles, biting the neck of small birds and rodents. When attacking scorpions, they first tear off the stinging tail. Afterward, and sometime before, they stand on their hind legs and lift their muzzles in the iconic pose of a wolf howling at the moon. And then they do howl a high-pitched cry that rises and falls, a celebratory exult, this is my scorpion. They might also howl as a territorial warning, communicating to other grasshopper mice, this is my land. And not just a pocket mouse kind of land, but as much as 25 acres, all mine. A male might howl as a love song too, although love and sex are both fraught 
with females sometimes killing their partners and males sometimes killing theirs. I can see and hear their howls on a YouTube video. Curious about that scorpion, I stay on YouTube. Here is the grasshopper mouse in his laboratory cage, the scorpion deliberately introduced, and the stalk and pounce, venomous scorpion tail lashing, mouse getting stung again and again, more biting, lashing, leaping, biting. In picoseconds, trillions of seconds, proteins in the mouse's nerve cells bind with the scorpion venom and block the pain signal that would paralyze another animal, and that works so well on the scorpion's own prey. Grasshopper mice have adapted to dry landscapes like the desert by getting most or all of their water from meat. This strategy has been working for a long time. Based on fossils, a grasshopper mouse in the 21st century looks much like a grasshopper mouse from 5 million years ago. When drought sweeps like a broom across the American Southwest, when the pines and cottonwoods have been gathered like dust in a refuse pile, when the humans drift away, immigrate north, grasshopper mice will creep from their nest, hoping, hunting for a scorpion. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Sherman. Wow, that was so beautiful. Wow, really, really beautiful. Thank you. Michelle Otero is a writer, performer, and teacher. Raised in Deming, New Mexico, Michelle earned a bachelor's degree in history with honors from Harvard University. It took her a while to find her way to writing and to see that poetry was always there. She recalls hearing teachers, sayings and proverbs that usually rhymed. Quote, I was surrounded by people who use language in really beautiful ways. Unquote, she says. After graduation, she did a two-year volunteer stint in Belize, where she read constantly and journaled daily. She eventually completed a master's in creative writing at Vermont College of Fine Arts and was awarded a Fulbright Fellowship to create writing workshops in Oaxaca, Mexico for women who survived domestic and sexual violence. Her book of essays, Malinche's Daughter, grew from that experience. Her work has appeared in Artful Dodge, Brevity, and Puerto del Sol, and her awards include an Associated Writing Programs Intro Journal Award and a Fulbright Fellowship. She's a member of the Macondo Writers' Workshop. Michelle has long loved to show people the poetry that surrounds them every day, which she did with a bigger platform when she served as Albuquerque's Poet Laureate. Michelle has begun a Walk with Poets project to encourage people to write about the Bosque along the Rio Grande. I now invite Michelle to speak about her work and read some of her poems. Thank you for that introduction. And um, thank you all for being here. Um, Shubanka for just a wonderful, for all the gathering you've done with us. <laughs> and um, Sharman, it's a pleasure to read with you and to just hear your work in your own voice, which is just a, a much richer experience. It's beautiful on the page and wonderful to hear it in your voice. So I'm going to go in reverse. I'm actually going to start with the reading and then I'll, um, and then I'll say some remarks about identity and nature. Um, so I'll be 
be reading from my poetry collection, Bosque, which is based on my time as poet laureate of Albuquerque. And a lot is um, drawn from those walks along the Rio Grande Bosque, um, where each month I would invite a poet to pick a spot in the Bosque they wanted to explore and uh, a poet whose work they'd wanted, they wanted to celebrate. And um, it's called Walking with Poets and um, some really wonderful moments and memories and poems <laughs> came out of that experience. Um, many, not all mine, lots of other people's wonderful poems. <laughs> so, all right, here we go. This is from Bosque. The color brown, coyote fence, backyard dirt, January yucca frond, estancia pintos, arroyo sand, sun-cracked gourd, cottonwood trunk, husk, dust, mesquite pod, dirt road, river clay, adobe brick, Taush church, mother's hands, me. Water. We tell the children tales of thunderstorms. Each May we drop rose petals into trickling acequia, invoke San Isidro for good harvest, good rain, pray these petals seed clouds. We remember summers of fire, haze over mesa, sunset behind a scrim of smoke, torches in the jemes, torches in the sangres, kindling night roads from Santa Fe to Santo Domingo. What if it never rains again? What if it never rains again? Rain. We remember Islera feast day, hide drum, dancers pray with their feet, one chin then another turns to sky, two gold eagles circle, conjuring clouds, one drop, then another, stillness except the drum, the dance, the rain. Sunday morning, we cross Central Bridge on foot, called by the same spirit drawing hiking boots, cowboy hats, hard creased dickies, running shorts, pigtails, plastic rosary hanging from a walker, nose rings, Oakland Raiders tattoos. We stand in silence on the banks of the Rio Grande, Pilgrims no less awestruck than John the Baptist converts for the miracle of a river at its highest point in 40 years. For a moment, we forgot our thirst. Language. They didn't teach us Spanish, didn't want us punished in school, our names changed, didn't want us to sound Mexican. Tan lejos de Dios. 1848 to 1912, Washington sent governors, white elephants to mine the new territory. English and Spanish in our constitution. What of Caris, Navajo, Tiwa, Tewa? We were pueblos, we were Mexico, tan lejos de Dios, tan cerca de los Estados Unidos. It wasn't perfect, but we shifted too soon. Spanish to English, communal to cash, parciante shovels to conservancy trucks, water and ejido shares for sale. Partido, rent your sheep from the dealer, buy your goods at the company store. They straightened the waters, twisted the men. Faith. We thank the herb for giving. A scrap of osha in the pocket protects against snake bite. Yerbabuena soothes the stomach. Yerba manso heals a rash. We believe in rain. Yerbas, duendes, believe an egg rubbed over the heart puede quitar el susto. Believe a mother wanders riverbanks, crying, calling, just for us. Water. This is New Mexico. Here, life walks in circles. In drought, we the people look to the skies, put a hand to the ground. In drought, we the people are water. Right. So, um, Allison, I wondered if you would share. I had, I was messaging Allison. <laughs> so, we a start share and a stop share. 
Um, so I want to talk a little bit about where I'm from and how that shapes my poetry and, um, and my writing and really the work that I do in the world. Um, so I run a small consulting business called uh, Artesana Creative Consulting. Artesana is the Spanish word for artisan. And I think of that word as somebody who creates beauty with her hands. Um, it's also made up of the two Spanish words, arte for art and sana, which comes from the Spanish word sanar, which is to heal, healing through story, healing through art, healing through creative expression. Um, so as I started to write, when I, um, I would try to surround myself with the things that were meaningful to me or with reminders of them. And inevitably, anytime I set up a corkboard, it would include scenes from nature, pictures of my family, pictures of books, trinkets, um, doodads, a silhouette. And so I want to bring, um, I want to highlight some of who and what you see in this corkboard. Um, so in the near the upper left-hand corner, there is a tall tree from the Gila wilderness. Um, in, as you move a little bit over or holding on, anchoring that the right corner of that tall tree is a small cross um, that was made by volunteers for Amigos de las Mujeres de Juarez. Um, coming down a little further over to the right is a picture of my grandmother, my grandma China, who was my uh, maternal grandmother. That is a picture of her in her backyard in Deming, which is where I spent a lot of time um, as a child. And um, she was, uh, lest you get any warm, fuzzy feelings, this was my mija, bring me a cold one, grandma. <laughs> so not, not um, she loved us fiercely and um, had a big heart with sharp edges. <laughs> Um, as we go down, it's a picture of my grandmother and me, and it's the only picture I actually have of the two of us alone together. And I think of that as my, she lived within walking distance of me, and then my other grandmother lived um, on the other side of town from us, which was about an eight-minute drive from our house on the other side of Deming. Um, and I think of that, that sometimes we can be pressed up so close to someone, um, see them so often that we don't think to capture that. And we don't think to um, market with things like poems or things like photographs. Um, hence, only one picture of my grandma and me by ourselves. Um, so I want to kind of highlight those three things and talk about why they're meaningful to me. Um, Allison, I wondered if you could go to the next slide. So here's a close-up of the tree. And um, I just want you to stay with that image and notice that Our Lady of Guadalupe is in the lower right-hand corner. And then Allison, feel free to stop share because I'm also, I'm easily distracted. So <laughs> I'd like to just um, see all of you, all of your faces um, a little bigger on the screen. Um, so when I think about identity and nature, and I think about um, in particular land-based peoples in this particular geography in New Mexico and my own family, um, I think of how much of my childhood I spent not being aware of the richness and the beauty of the place that I was from. In fact, if you had met me at the age of 16 or 17, I would have told you, um, I'm going to college in a place, I'm going to draw a big circle around this state, and I will go to school anywhere outside of this circle. And I did. I went far away, far, far outside of this circle, thanks to mentoring, thanks to um, support from, um, from, you know, wonderful teachers and uh, folks who help young people from New Mexico get into fancy schools. Um, and as 
you know, not a surprise that when I went far away to that place and was in this place where there was so much greenery and kind of really an abundance and an overabundance of knowledge, of greenery, of of all different types of food, um, so many books, all these things that I had been craving. That's when I started to realize, um, number one, I don't know if I belong here. I don't feel equipped to be in this place. I'm not sure if they made a mistake. I didn't go to a prep school. I'm a public, I'm a product of Deming High School and Deming Public Schools. Um, but two, when I started to realize, so why am I here? What is the thing that, um, and I started to recognize the difference between um, what you get from a place versus what you get from a book or, or what you get from training. And I recognized it took me all four of those years to recognize I can get the training. I can learn to study. I can learn to write. I can learn to ask the right questions. I can learn to think critically. I can learn all of those things, but nothing can replace that nothing can replace the experience of uh, walking to my grandmother's house, of um, her telling stories uh, while smoking a cigarette and my grandpa um, just listening and telling her to be nicer. <laughs> nothing can replace the, the view of La Florida Mountains from the place that I was from um, or replace the smell of the rain hitting the dirt. Um, nothing can replace that dry Membrus River. That was my river growing up, Sherman. And um, and how my relationship with that river for so long was one of driving to it every year for Christmas so we could get our sand for luminarias and then going to it every single time it rained hard to see if the water was actually flowing. And both of those things felt miraculous and beautiful in their own way. Um, and so how that brings me to that picture of that pine, that that tall tree in the Gila wilderness is... Um, the time when I lost my grandmother. I lost, we lost our grandmother unexpectedly. She worked very hard. She was a person very much of this place, born in Hanover, um, spent most of her life in Southern New Mexico, met my grandfather when she was 15. And um, he was with the Civilian Conservation Corps, had come from Texas and spent his time in Columbus and um, building um, building sidewalks, um, you know, putting in, um, putting, creating trails at state parks. And every weekend he would drive the guys from Columbus into Deming. So when I, he met my grandmother, um, they started their family together. And when we lost her, um, it was a shock to all of us. And it came after a time of, um, that was really difficult in my life. And I remember doing what I always do, which was, turning back to relationships, not just relationships with human beings, but relationships with places. So in my broken heart, a friend of mine and I traveled to the Gila wilderness. I lit a fire and I remember thinking, um, maybe by the time this fire goes down, I'll be that much closer to having my heart healed. Um, Maybe by the time we come back to here, I'll be that much closer to my heart being healed. And then I saw my friend lying on the ground, looking up like this. (laughs) and taking a picture of that tree. So that tree has stayed with me and it reminds me what I need to turn to in those moments when my heart needs healing. When the story I'm telling myself is that the anguish or the wounding that I feel is permanent and that all I need to do to come back to it is to rekindle my, uh, my relationship with it, with nature and with the human beings who connect me to nature and to this place. Thank you all. And I look forward to your questions and our conversation. Thank you both. Wow. Wow, beautiful. Really beautiful. Both of you, both of you. Just to hear 
both of you read your own work truly was magical and to hear your stories. So thank you. Uh, it's hard to, hard to ask any questions. <laughs> it's a conversation, but I'll share just one quick reflection uh, is as you're speaking about learning from books and, uh, and from place and uh, loved ones and things that matter. So I'll just share with you something that I, I'm at UNM, I teach here, I'm a tenured full professor, I have an endowed chair post. All the time I feel like an imposter because I teach in arts and humanities and I have no academic training in arts and humanities. All of my teaching, uh, as I like to say, uh, came from indigenous elders of Arctic Alaska, primarily women, Sarah James, Rosemary Atwan Garuak, many, many others. And so as you had both, you were you were talking about place in such a deep, soulful way, all of this was coming back. So I just wanted to share that reflection that I feel an imposter all the time. Hopefully the UNM upper administrators won't find out about my background and let me go. I need the job. So having said that, let's begin. I'll just, it's a conversation. So we, are, as I said at the beginning of this panel, that all three of us have very deep connections to the Gila. And it was very obvious uh, from your presentations. I'll share mine very briefly later, but I want to just begin with both of you um, and stay a little longer. You have basically answered the kind of a question that I was articulating, but let's stay a little longer with that personal connection. So I'll begin with you, Michelle, and then I will uh, come to you, Sherman. So let's see, I did uh, write it down. So it's obvious that you both have very deep personal connections to the Gila, the river, the forest, the valley. It's non-human, keen, and more broadly also southern New Mexico. Uh, so I want to begin with the personal and ask each of you a slightly different question. Uh, each one is kind of a two-part question. Your biography says that, and again, both of you have already covered it, but let's go a little more into that. Uh, so Michelle, your biography says that you are raised in Deming and you said that just now, uh, but can you go back and speak a little bit more about that early childhood there and any connection that you and your family may have had with the Gila at the time? The second part you have answered already, but I'll ask anyway, just so that we remember this concept, because the title of the conference is Reconnect with the River. Then you went to Harvard and Vermont and to Mexico, but you did return to the Gila uh, and you did reconnect with the river. So title of this festival. So I'm just curious if you want to take us back a little more to those early childhood days and your family's connection to the Gila and anything else later about healing that you have talked about during our sort of planning planning session yeah um so i um my mother was is a retired teacher she taught elementary school for about 30 years in deming and uh, my father has always been um, he's also retired but always been a, a blue collar guy even when he's had the opportunity to kind of advance to 
to white collar or being a, a pencil pusher, as he called it, he's, he's kind of wanted to stay more um, kind of on the line and um, all of that to say that um, I didn't grow up, we didn't grow up with a, a lot of money, although uh, my parents were certainly better off than their parents and they, they provided um, some things for us that they didn't have access to when they were young people. Um, so all of our vacations were spent in nature, right? We, we didn't fly places. We, um, you know, didn't, um, you know, go, we didn't travel far if we could get there by car. And, um, and then often um, we would, we didn't stay in hotels. We would either stay with family or we would camp. Um, so a lot of my early childhood memories were spent um, camping in the Gila um, and, and in the area around there. Um, and so what I remember from that is just the you know, like the miracle right, of like of cooking potatoes in a cast iron skillet over a fire of, um, of just thinking like my dad could do anything. Right. And, and what a, what an amazing thing that is for a child, especially, I think when you grow up without a lot of money or a lot of resources um, that it's so easy to see the deficit, like here are all the things that my, my parents can't afford. Um, but look, my dad can start this fire. My dad can uh, find shelter for us if it's raining. Um, my mom knows where to find like clean water um, here when we're, when we're in this place. And um, I have a memory of, so I've got three older brothers and, and one younger brother who's 10 years younger. So, um, you know, kind of, <laughs> I think we were both surprises. No one says that. <laughs> and I remember going on a, a camping trip with him and, and he kind of grew up like almost as an only child in some ways, because the age gap is so vast. And the times when we felt, when we were most connected, when we were young people. So when I was like 14 and he was four, which is just a, a lifetime of a gap, right? Were those times when we would go to the cliff dwellings or when we would go to Faywood Springs or when we would um, go camping. And just when things were about to get like, you know, he might say, oh, I'm bored or I'm hungry or I'm this, or why can't we do this or that? Um, my parents would say, let's just go for a walk, take your shoes off, just put your feet in the river. And that literally like, there's this wonderful word in Spanish, like aterrizar, and it's to... It really is to like come back down to earth, to like root yourself in earth. And I just remember like literally seeing that happen to him, like se aterrizó, like he was able to like get his feet into the ground and have that river. And it was, it was just good for our souls. Um, and how I've reconnected is um, just so my parents still live in Deming. They still live in the, the house where I grew up, although it's a, it's a, it's a much, it's a much improved house <laughs> than the one I lived in. They've had a lot of projects since I left. And um, so I kind of, you know, growing up, I kind of thought of, of, of Deming, Silver City, Lordsburg, like that whole area, just as one region, right? Like, so that's, we battle each other in marching band. And that was the big football game against Silver City. Every year, uh, my uncle lived in Baird and um, worked for the mines and, you know, and that's, a, and talk about an interesting and a complicated relationship with the land when, when somebody's livelihood is, is based in extraction and what it means when that goes away and just seeing how many people in my own community and that community were impacted by the ups and downs of the mine. Um so how I've reconnected some is some through writing really of just writing about the borderlands. Like, like I think here in, in Albuquerque, um, when we think of border towns, it's probably more like 
Gallup and the and the Navajo Nation or um you know Española and Santa Clara Pueblo like those are those are border towns in a in a way that I didn't grow up with um but I think of that whole area of the state as these borderlands and I just keep returning the, to them in my writing and um and then an image that keeps resurfacing and I haven't found a way to work it into a poem or an essay yet but um there is a um there's that handprint right in the cliff dwellings um, as you go and it's where they plastered and that handprint to me is just so striking. It's, it's like just evidence or a mark of like somebody was there, they made their dwelling from their hands. Um, They were artisans and um, to have that all these years later just really makes me think about like, how deep and long the connection between human beings and the environment, the place that they're in, um, how far back that goes in this place. I think that's a beautiful segue because that mm-hmm. connects, I think, all of us deep and long connection. And that is Sherman's life in the <laughs> Hila and the Mimbre. So thank you, Michelle. So I'll ask you, Sherman, basically continuing on that, that that you have lived in the Hila and the Membres for almost 40 years. Um, and uh, I write in the field called environmental humanities and humbly introduced a concept called long environmentalism. So as you were speaking, because our time, everything has just become so short, thinking about environmental engagement that lasts not days, but decades is very hard to conceive. And you are a living proof of that. So you have been involved with the Hiller River Festival also for many years. Again, a slightly two-part question. Can you share, like you arrived from Phoenix, it's kind of very similar to what my situation was when I arrived in Las Cruces from Kolkata. You arrived from Phoenix to the Hila uh, and the Membrace. Like just one moment from those very early years that you remember and what made you stay there? And then the second part to the question is completely different, which is now few people know the Hila as intimately as you do. And the Hila in recent years have had many challenges, including diversion, drought, climate change. And as you mentioned, you think way beyond that, but also positive development. Last year, Senator Udall and Senator Heinrich introduced a bill to designate nearly 450 miles of the Hila River to be designated as wild and scenic according to the 1968 Act. Can you tell us um, both that very early experience and what is happening right now and how the public how the public can engage with the issues of the Hila? Sure, I think I can remember both questions. <laughs> <laughs> but but I'm I'm you know there's that the poet said the heart wants what the heart wants. And uh, when I came to the members uh, with my husband, this is what we wanted. And we hadn't even seen it yet. As I said, we wanted to root somewhere. And our first uh, day was not a very, uh, you know, uh, a bounteous one. We, we, we came up, it was January, it was, you know, stress of snow and it was bleak and, 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 and the mines were, you know, sending smoke into the air. And I'm going to tell you that what happened is we drove into Silver City and we stopped at Nancy's Silver Cafe. And we, and that's been serving wonderful kind of root food for a long time. We had the greatest pecan pie I've ever had. And the reason I'm telling you that instead of 
all the stories about walking in the river with my kids or 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 seeing the beauty of uh, the Gila River is that it's also about community. You know, it was also about coming and seeing being in a place where, at, you know, at that time, Anglos and Hispanics, everyone was at Nancy's Cafe and, and they still are, although I don't know if it survived the pandemic and we talk about that a lot, uh, that it might not have, but but it was just, it was just the heart of, and Silver City was much scruffier then, it was 1981, you know, there was, Penny's was still downtown, but it was about to close and and dollar stores were downtown and, and, and there wasn't the kind of vibrant, wonderful art scene there is now, but it's it's always about people too. It's it's not just about my wonderful memories of being in the river. Uh, those memories are more and more every day. I I can walk out and walk along the river. I, I hope to go to the river event tomorrow. That but it'll involve people too. It'll it'll involve being with people. So the second part, yes, so, you know, yeah. Uh, the second part of that. Uh, Yes, it's it's been pretty amazing 40 years living here in terms of environmentalism. And and the last you know 5 years have in some way been the most amazing. How how could a dam once again threaten the Gila River? It's it's not a big river. I mean, if you come from the east, you just it's a creek. It's a creek, you know. Um how could a dam threaten that? And then how could how could the Air Force uh, how could the Holloman Air Force think about sending so many flyovers? I mean, these were real threats to the river. And and I have to say Allison and Donna and uh you know, my husband worked on it too, a horde of volunteers, Susan Beck, people really rose to the occasion and been fighting for years, for years to 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 keep the river undammed. And and to keep the skies, you know, clear and 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 empty, just to respect what we have here, this this land that's still relatively pristine. So it's been kind of a roller coaster. It's it's kind of like you know, if it's not feral cattle or or or, or airplanes or or a dam. And I guess that's just why we all have to still have Gila River festivals, and we have to have poets, and we have to have. Um, meetings and because there's always going to be that pressure on this kind of of beauty, it seems. Um, And until we all as a society, all of us really come to just uh, respect and love what it represents. Um, And I think we're getting there. I'm kind of this uh, ridiculously optimistic person. Um, And, and it's through writing Uh, like Michelle, I, I've I've deepened uh, my life in the Gila. For me, it's been through writing uh, first um, and and watching the wonderful work of the activist. Thank you thank you so much. So you know, I mean, a significant part of my work over the last twenty years has been trying to protect the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge that the Indigenous Guichin people call the sacred place where life begins. So I talk about this long environmentalism, exactly what both of you were talking about. And audience members always ask, like, how can something sustain decades? And I tell them, it's not the politics, it's not the fight. It's dance, music, food, stories, poems. <laughs> and I mean it, like when we are in the villages, I mean it, that's what it is. So uh, we'll now shift to the Q&A, but allow me to just share my one little connection to the Hila because it was so foundational. So in January 1990, like winter, you said, I come to Las Cruces all the way from Kolkata. It used to be called Calcutta. Kolkata, India, very densely populated city, 10 plus million people. Two Las Cruces, which at the time probably was like 50,000. 
And soon thereafter, with two friends, we've been married now for 30 years, uh, have two kids. Uh, they live in the Netherlands now. So we go to the Hila for a backpack. And I had never even hiked. Forget about a backpack. <laughs> and they were both backpackers. So I've never hiked. So I go with them. And what happens is that I am struggling. Every five minutes, I have to stop, get a, a drink of water, catch my breath. And for the lack of a better word, send a curse toward them. Why did they bring me into this? And I could not understand why any sane human being would want to carry a heavy pack and go up and down a mountain. So that was my experience. I come back. I'm like, that is the last time I'm going to go out with you guys. <laughs> and uh, But that changed my whole life. I became very involved. I became first the outing chair for the Southern New Mexico Sierra Club, then became their vice chair. But my mentor at the time was someone named Marion Teller in Las Cruces, a fierce conservationist who personally hand-trained me because then I became her deputy a little later. So when in 2012, I heard that the uh, Oregon Mountains and the Desert Peak has been designated a national monument, the first thought, and thanks to, again, Senator Heinrich and Senator Udall, first person that came to my mind was Marion Teller. Because I remember how hard she fought against the military back in the day to clear all those unexploded ordinances or whatever the heck was uh, strewn on that land. So, uh, and I've gone back to the Hila many, many times. This past winter, my partner, Dr. Jennifer Garcia Peacock and I camped twice. One time, uh, we did not quite, we did look at the weather, but we were actually near the cliff dwellings. We didn't look at the weather. We thought it will be 30, but overnight temperature dropped to 15. So <laughs> we yeah. survived. And I'm a skinny guy, but we survived. <laughs> so thanks so much. I just wanted to share with you that the Gila is very, 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 very deeply personal. So I'm very grateful to be in conversation with both of you. And now we open up to the Q&A. And I am with you all. And so please put in the question on the chat bar. And I am at your service, Leah, to say, no, not uh, chat. No, Q&A. Is it Q&A or chat? Allison or it's Leah? Q&A. It is Q&A. Sorry, 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 sorry. So Q&A. So I can actually uh, shift through this. So shall I just go with the first? Why not? Stephen Fox uh, is asking, say the modern disease is alienation from place, family, religious faith, and tribe or ethnicity. Of those four, the easiest to get back is place. More people should try to recover their plates. It's there waiting for all of us. So it's it's a, both a remark and a question. Uh, it'll be wonderful if both of you would want to address, speak to that. Four things. So place, family, both of you have talked about place and family, religious faith, tribe or ethnicity? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to jump in because it's, it's, it's something I think that has to be repeated. I think there, I think the whole earth is a beautiful place. I, I don't think the Gila is like, I, I mean, it's special to me, but I think San Francisco is special and Chicago is special and, and the Arctic Circle and, and Malawi, you know, where I've uh, been recently. It's, 
I mean, it's falling in love with with the world, and that has to include the non-human world. Uh, if, you know, because we're we have to come to terms with living, you know, on this world in a sustainable way. Uh, so I agree with Stephen a lot, and I think it's, I I think it, if everyone could just fall in love with the place they are, eighty five percent of Americans are in cities. Fall in love with that city and make it green and sustainable, and 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 a beautiful place to 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 walk and to be with your family. And, and so, you know, I just start babbling when I start thinking about things like that. So I'll let Michelle go on. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think this idea of like, like, like just developing, building the love muscle, right. So wherever you find relationship or connection, um, I'm remembering a part of um, the color purple where um, Shug Avery is, is talking and she had her father's a preacher. She's kind of estranged from him, but she grew up in the church and she's a singer and experiences love through that and experiences love for Seely. And then she says um, that she had this moment one day where she just was by a tree and she's like, I knew that if I cut the branch, my arm would bleed. Um, and, and I think of how, so how her entry point was maybe, through faith. And then it was through loving another woman. And then it was through nature. And so I think just being able to form relationship with, um, with a pet or or to form a relationship with, um, with the roadrunner running through your yard or, um, or a, a place or that actually just being able to form that connection, um, when you fill it again with something else, whether it's like in a, in a religious service or by the river or with another human being or, um, or with a community, um, it feels familiar and it feels good. So I, I think, I think there are multiple entry points into relationship and love and, and when you experience it in one realm, um, it kind of builds the the portal, right. For you to be able to experience it in others. I'll just say a little bit continuing on what Michelle is saying, multiple entry point, and again, uh, speak specifically to faith uh, and religion. So one of the most vibrant areas of work that is taking place in our field, environmental humanity, is religion and ecology at the point. But for me, it's a very, again, it's place-based, it's people-based, culture-based. So I'll give just one, like how we think about entry points or turning points in history is 1962 is when Rachel Carson's Silent Spring was published, which is widely recognized and for the right reasons as having sparked the modern environmental movement, which we now call uh, environmental justice, to think about how industrial pollution affects our lives and health and everything else. But that year, a husband-wife team Kenojuak uh, Ashevak and Johnny Ashevak in the remote, remotest of the remote community of uh, uh, Cape Dorset, the Inupia, Inuit name is Kingite, created a very simple drawing with which I start my whole art and ecology class, where you see human, non-human, and their sea and their goddess, the sea goddess Sedna, all in a circle. Very simple but very deeply foundational. So 1962, I think of both Rachel Carson and that drawing having equal significance because we are coming to that place now, thinking through a place, a non-human, Sharman and you both have spoken about the non-human, keen through faith, religion, 
and spirituality. So earlier this year, I gave a talk at Yale on that very subject called global, visualizing global biodiversity, uh, sacred places and relations. Moving on to the next question, do find that writing about places you love is easier or harder when they are so gravely threatened? Very important question. Do you find that as you write about these places, uh, easier or harder? This is, of course, you both are writers. I think it's a really important question. Yeah, I am. Um, I just kind of, you know, rarely does writing, I, um, who is it? Anne Lamott talks about how, you know, rarely as a writer, do you feel like you're just, you know, flying across the tundra like <laughs> the other dogs are just taking you. And so I just, it, um, it, it really takes me just to, to get into the space of writing is um, just like a dog lying down for a nap, right? I will circle, 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 circle. But when I finally plop, it's, um, um, it's I, I don't know that it's harder or easier. It's just being in relationship with it. Um, so there is something about the writing that feels um, hopeful that, you know, that's what this, this project I did along the Bosque was about. So we saw it in every season and there were, um, one of the summers we couldn't walk on most of the trails because it was flooded and that was so joyous and, um, and amazing. And then a few months later, it was so dry and, um, and then somebody was lighting fires in the bosque that summer. So we'd pass by burn scars and, um, so I don't know if harder or easier is the frame that I would use. It was more like, um, it felt, uh, like urgent or, um, like the only way that I, I was trying to write myself out of hopelessness. I, and, and so that's the, um, so yeah, I think that is hard actually, like to know that these places are threatened, that maybe the spot that I love so much will look different, or maybe, um, you know, this last stand of middle Rio Grande cottonwoods, um, you know, they'll, we, they have about another generation left. Um, and what's it going to be like when my kids are my age and, and maybe taking their own children to the bosque, um, and, right alongside that kind of despair um, is also just the idea of like, what a gift to be able to see it and be in relationship with it in this stage and to lead other people to it through, through projects and through the writing. And, um, and maybe that becomes a way of, of, um, of saving it. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll just echo that. It is about being in relationship and, and, you know, writing has always been uh I, my, mis, my initial response to it was writing's always hard, but actually my second response is writing's always joyous. I, I love to write and, and, um, and, and it is about going deeper and it's about going specifics. It's not about staying in the general kind of hopelessness or the larger issues because they're too big. It's about what's going on right outside your window or what's going on that day. Um, uh, the forest fires going through and they and they burn up areas you've been hiking in. And then in a few years, you're going back and the locusts are coming up and, and you're seeing the regrowth. And it's not the same forest. It's not spruce, certainly. And it's not necessarily ponderosa pine. And those black chars of, you know, those spikes in the air look ugly. But the deeper you go, the you start learn, you know, you start thinking about regeneration and rest and and things restoring and the long, the long time, you know, not not necessarily your life, your children's life. You just you 
for me, writing about science and having that background in science, it it is about getting that other perspective too. It's about the scorpion mouse, you know, and this, uh, I mean, the grasshopper mouse and the scorpion battling and, 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 and death and birth and death and birth. And so the deeper you go into a relationship with nature, I think actually the more joyous it is, um, when you add in what humans are doing to nature and when you add in what they're doing maybe to places that you love, then of course you get you get you get the sorrow. But writers love to write about sorrow too. I mean writing life is sorrow and life is loss. We're organic. If you're an organic being, you're you're gonna experience loss and sorrow. And um and so that's just kind of what we do too, I think. So I'll add just a little bit to that, not writing, but art that may answer another way. Because if there is one thing that maybe connect three of us as we are talking is a commitment to engage. So, so I'll just give you one quick example through art. So last fall, I was teaching a class on biodiversity crisis and conservation. And as we started the class, a mass bird die-off in New Mexico uh, began to unfold that many of you yes. know. And uh, by the time uh, end of October, as it is now archived, all of you can look it up. I Naturalist Southwest Avian Mortality Project noted that members of 221 different bird species had died. So what do my students do? I don't even have to tell them what is biodiversity crisis or extinction or anything like that. They just went out, looked at what it is, came back. One of those students was Alexandria Dedochas, who created at the time a very simple line drawing of youth taking on the biodiversity crisis. Over the summer, Alexandria finalized that, which now graces the cover of the Defenders of Wildlife National Biodiversity Strategy student letter campaign to President Biden. So it's just that. It's as you both of you so beautifully said, loss is part of life. And of course, things are getting worse, but also uh, it's not about that. It's about a commitment to engage with whatever we got. Our next question, you are both strong, accomplished writers. I'm curious about the transition of writing for personal journaling to writing for others to read. When was that? Was there someone you wanted to emulate? Whoa. Well, you know, I, I, I guess I'll throw, I haven't, I haven't done a lot of personal journaling for a long time. Um, be, I, 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 like so many say, I, I discover what I'm thinking as I write. And it's not just thinking, it's what I'm feeling. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's such a meditative state in that sense. It's that I'm, I'm not my usual self, you know, um, and, and I'm, I'm just, in this place of exploration and discovery. And that happens in the revision too. As you recraft it, you think, oh no, that is actually what you really think. It's just kind of an extraordinary process. And I've I've been going directly to that for a long time, not not journaling, not journaling so much. Um, some people might call my emails journaling, you know, as I send out a long, you know, a letter to friends and then family. Um, but um, you know, it's just so different for everyone. I think everyone the, the, everyone finds their own way, and 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 as long as you're feeling that that connection, that creativity, that alpha state, that that sense of deep satisfaction, you're doing it right. That 
that would be my uh, uh, statement. Yeah, I um, I, I also I journal less than I used to, but I still it's kind of taken different forms. So now my journals have become more of um, I started doodling in the pandemic because writing was hard, and so it was a lot of um, um, I think you know had a lot of fun doing Trump's hair. <laughs> <laughs> And or just insomnia and, you know, lots of stick figures. But um, I kind of think of, you know, I describe the journal as just a a place where you can stick your stomach all the way out. Right. And and then um, and then I have all these other little like so I've got like this journal where um, just a great gift. It's got Wonder Woman on it. But I'll put like if an image or a line comes to me or a thought or a puzzle or something that I'm chewing on, if it makes it into that, then I know it's worth kind of going back and um and trying to piece it together. And, and so for me, the leap is really from the, the journaling is more about, it's like venting or this happened today, or I should mark this, or this really moved me. And then um, when I, when it kind of comes out of there and goes somewhere else or, or, or it's an, it's offered to other people is when um, I'm making, I'm trying to make meaning out of it. Right. So I I spend more time with it if I'm trying to make meaning and kind of reintegrate it into my life. And um, and it really is. I mean, it sounds like it really is a gut feeling of like, oh, this is where this belongs or this is who this goes to. I I don't um, you know, I write many, many, many words that never see the light of day and and shouldn't. (laughs) actually. (laughs) And then the ones that do are the ones that I know are like, oh, I think this is. I, I, I want to give this to other people um, so that they can complete the process for me. So that's what it is. Like when it goes out, when it goes beyond me, then it's it's really offering it to someone else so they can complete the process. So one question here, how do you think feelings of deep affection for an old place can help or hinder one's development of feelings of deep affection for a new place? <laughs> Yeah, I think the heart is infinite. <laughs> it was, um, yeah, I had a really hard time coming back to the U.S. from Oaxaca. I, I was not ready. I, I went for nine months and I stayed for two years. And um, and when I when I came back, it was to kind of finish my master's program and start paying off my loans. And um, and um, and I thought, oh, I, I don't know how. Um, I don't know how I'm going to live in the U S again. So that that part felt hard and um, really, really missing what Oaxaca gave me. I mean, much like the Gila, much like that, that tall Ponderosa pine Oaxaca really, um, you know, when you grow up on the border, you're around a lot of people who are pressed right up against the United States. Right. And are crossing back and forth, probably much less now than before, but all of the people I knew who were, from Mexico when I was a child were people who couldn't stay there. They were people who had to come to this side to work, to go to school for better opportunities. And and so just the experience of being able to be in a place where people could stay and um, and to kind of reclaim this language that I I wasn't taught and to um, see so many, to be in a place where being Mexican was a beautiful and a wonderful thing was so healing for me much in the way that um land was it was like coming remembering right like coming back together um, having my body put back together and my my soul and it was hard to let that go um 
so when I did come back to Albuquerque, um, I have a, a wonderful friend in Oaxaca who's like, who just calls this my Mi País del Norte. I have like Mi País del Norte, Mi País del Sur. So I have my Northern country <laughs> and my Southern country. And um, so for many months I tried, I had one foot here and one foot there. I was really trying to figure out how to live in both places. And what I realized was oh, I'm kind of living in neither and um, so what would happen if I just committed to being in Albuquerque? What would happen if I, um, if I got, if I got a real job, right? So I'm, I'm a consultant. And so I actually worked, I got a job with the Wilderness Society for a year. So that's my <laughs> I was their Southern New Mexico campaigns coordinator. I signed a lease on an apartment and I thought, let me just, again, aterrizarme, let me just put my feet on this earth and and try to be in relationship with it in the way that I was in Oaxaca. I still get to miss and love that this place, but let me see what this place, like my place has to offer. Um, I think coming home can be some of the hardest new places, right? Like I was different. This place was different. Um, and, um, and so it was in that, just making that commitment doesn't mean I have to be here for the rest of my life. Um, and then in that, you know, every good thing came from that decision. Like I, I met my, um, I met my now husband. Um, I, um, when that, um, so the reason I had that picture of the corkboard and that kind of faded picture of the Ponderosa pine is because I no longer have that corkboard. I, I lost that apartment in a fire in, um, in 2000, in 2009. And, um, and so I even think of that, of like that year and making that connection and deciding to put down roots. It's not, the universe doesn't always say great. <laughs> like sometimes it says, I'm glad you're committed. Um, you know, let, let yourself develop this community and have wonderful friends. So when I, I lost that place to fire, this community really just surrounded me with, um, with love. And, um, and it became home in a way that didn't feel possible when I first moved back. Wow. Thank you. Well, you know, I think that touches on a number of things that uh, Michelle has said, and we've all said, um, the heart is wide, you know, um, and uh, learning to live with loss, because that's inherent in that question. I think the places that we live right now, we're losing, uh, again, to a forest fire or to climate change. Um, but I also think it's about just learning how to love it all. Uh, and once you learn how, you you can do it in the new place too. Uh, it's not about, it, it's about love and your relationship. It's not that, you know, just one-to-one. And it can't be, you know, it can't be. And, and I'll just go further on from Michelle's talk about her life is, you know, now I'm entering the last stage of my life. Will I be able to live here and in, in this home in the Gila? And when I'm 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 25, I mean, as, as we, we all kind of start having to adjust to changes, to losses, to, to going places we, we didn't expect. Um, and that's been the human condition. We see it in the, in the, in the refugees and climate change refugees coming across, you know, uh, happening more and more. Um, and so we're part of that too, within our own life. So I think it's a great question because it's, it's not just about how do I move from one place to another? It's just about how do I live life that's constantly changing around me? And, and how do I take what I've learned to love here in, into the next moment when I have to uh, learn to love something else? And, and uh, so it's, it's, it's a profound 
profound question and a profound achievement to to keep loving through the change. So we have three minutes. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sharman. We have three minutes. One question. Maybe this is the last question. Michelle and Shubankar and anyone else in the audience whose first language is something other than English or who speaks another language fluently, do you feel like your native language's ability or inability to describe the natural world has mediated and or influenced your place-based identity? If so, how? Michelle, you want to go? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, so, so English is my first language. My my parents' first language is Spanish, and and both of them on, on my father's side. Um, you know, the the Oteros have been in New Mexico for for many, many, many generations, um, and. Um, so, um, and, you know, it's a familiar story. You'll meet many people, my generation who say my parents didn't teach us Spanish because, um, they were punished for it, for speaking it in school. So it was just, I don't, not even conscious, but just why would we, why would we do that? Why would we, um, speaking Spanish wasn't really considered a, an, an asset when I was a kid. Um, so, and yet there were, I think even if you grow up not speaking a language, but having it around you, it, it, it did enhance my understanding of my surroundings. Like there's words that I um, just, even the way we pronounce our mountains in, in Deming, right. They're the Floridas. It's, it means florid or ornate. Um, and you look at those mountains and you're like, Oh, there's not much going on there, but then you get close up and it's like, Oh, there's actually, there's, Choiga, there's yucca, there's, um, you know, these amazing rock formations, like the way the, the, the sun hits the, hits the side of the mountain, um, is, is really beautiful. Um, so I think that, um, my understanding of, of the place that I'm from would be very different without, um, without the Spanish, um, if, if I didn't have access to that. Um, so I'm thankful that even though, um, even though I had to reclaim it and, and kind of learn it in my thirties, I'm thankful that I had so much access to it, that, that there were grownups around me who were speaking it all the time and that there were words and concepts and things that I, that I only knew in Spanish and had to learn later. Like, I mean, I'm not, I can't think of any of them right now, or just even like Manzanilla, right? Like um, not that it grows in Deming, but that's chamomile. And, um, but I always knew it as Manzanilla. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so that's the, the kind of answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. Alison, is there time for me to respond or we close now? It's eight o'clock. No, Shubankar, go ahead, please, okay. and, and answer. I think that would be it's great. A, it's an extremely important question that has so many threads, like what Michelle was talking about. So it's kind of continuing on. So uh, for me, the uh, first language is Bengali. And English came later, not until I was almost, and I even schooled in Bengali until about eighth grade. And then, of course, the colonial language you have to pick up to get a job and what have you. And it's even more so. During our my childhood, we could still go like all the way through high school in Bengali. All that said, so where I come from are two things. We had, at least my family did not have money. Like my parents raised three kids with very little resources. And our access to art was in two forms. One was literature, because where I come from, there are just 
just dozens and dozens of literary figures. Uh, Rabindranath Tagore, who was a poet, and Polymath won the Nobel Prize for Literature, the first Asian to do so. But there are many, many others. So literature, and it was accessible, it was cheap, it was you can go anywhere and find their writing. The other was film. So where I come from, produced some of the greatest uh, filmmakers in world cinema, including, of course, Ray, many of you know, Shotojit Ray, but also the others who are just equally great, uh, Ritik Ghatok uh, uh, and uh, Rinal Shin and many, many others. But my primary uh, influence was my parents' childhood friend, Mahashita Devi, who was at the time India's most well-known uh, novelist, but gave up her career at the height of her career to become an advocate for tribal rights. And that's what she did. She just died a few years ago. So she has always been and continues to be the greatest inspiration of my life and always will be. Uh, so the language really mattered, but I will just switch gear and share something else. So yes, but unlike Michelle, when you went back to Oaxaca and you like reclaimed that, for me, of course, being here, I'm, con I'm like gradually losing that, right? Even these days, I would admit that when I'm at a book signing, someone would come up to me and say, write something in Bengali. And the first thing that happens is a form of hesitation, which is deeply troubling for me. So it's not that I'm, I am losing, so I, I, I'm more mindful. And as I get older, I'm trying to get back to that, my partner and I, She's a scholar of Latinx environmentalism, but, but we try to watch Bengali films so that I can maybe get back some of that. But I want to share with you something and close with that. Just one example. So we talk about indigenous peoples and the stewards of biodiversity and on and on and on. And they need to, uh, the, so this is going on. Huge thing, the indigenous kinship with the non-human kin. Something else is taking place now, which is so amazing that I would not have known. A dear colleague of mine who is the head of the subsistence division with the Alaska State Fish and Game, Dr. Liliana Naves, who originally comes from Brazil, and her work with the UP communities have uncovered, and it's an ongoing work, is very fresh and just beginning to write. She herself is a writer also, is a reverse process taking place, which is magical, where engaging with biodiversity is helping to reclaim the Yupik language that has been lost just with shorebirds. Because when she first started talking with everybody of shorebird, there is only one word for shorebird. And as they started to uncover the language, it just became dozens. And now it, what is coming back is music that also got lost along the way, dance that also got lost along the way. And so they, it's just an exciting moment. So that's why it comes back to that point, even in moments of grief, or especially in moments of grief that both of you have talked about, these magical moments are taking place also. So yeah. at the end of the day, it's really about a commitment to engage and a whole world opens up that we knew nothing about. So with that, we are five minutes over. I want to Thank both of you, Michelle and Sherman and Alison and Leah. Uh, it has been the most meaningful event of this year and probably for the last many years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for facilitating. And Alison, thank you for 
doing all of this. And thank you for Michelle for your poetry and for for reading with me. I so enjoyed that. Oh, it's wonderful. Thank you, Sharman. I hope we get to do it in person. I do too. I do yeah. too. <laughs> we have to. Yeah. <laughs> we have to. We have to. This is just the start, as I always say. To be continued, it has to. Yeah. Yes. Thank so much. Yeah. Thank. I'm just gonna want to say just a few words in closing. So thank you to uh, our two wonderful panelists, Sharman Apt Russell and Michelle Otero, and to our moderator Shubankar Banerjee. And thanks so much to all of you for the interesting and heartfelt sharing and discussion, and for attending the 17th annual Gila River Festival.